Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Sherry Boshert titled 37 Words, Title IX, and 50 Years of Fighting Sex Discrimination, published by The New Press. Sherry Boshert is an award-winning journalist and the author of Plug-in Hybrids, The Cars That Will Recharge America. She received the Distinguished Service Award from the Society of Professional Journalists for her efforts to promote equity within the news industry. Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. It's wonderful to be here. I was wondering if you could tell us how this book came about. Well, after I wrote my first book about electric vehicles, Plug-in Hybrids, um, I got itchy again in the early 2010s to maybe write another book. And I thought, well, what do I want to write about? I wanted to write about something that inspires me. And Title IX inspires me. At the time, it was starting to appear in headlines a lot around sexual assault on campus. Now, I'm 66 years old. My generation knew Title IX, if they knew it at all, as the law that got women into sports. And here it was on headlines in the New York Times and lots of other places about sexual assault on campus. And I thought, what is this about? And so I started researching Title IX and I realized there was no good full history of the law out there. And so I decided to write one. And- Oh yeah, so what is Title IX? Title IX is a law passed in 1972 to prohibit sex discrimination, to prohibit sex discrimination in education. It is a civil rights law, and it starts with 37 words. I'm going to read those 37 words. It says, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And then it goes on for, you know, pages with details and exceptions and things. But those are the essential 37 words of Title IX. All right. So 37 words is your title. And that's what you're going to talk about in uh, throughout this uh, throughout this whole book. It is. And it's, it's important, those 37 words in more than one way. And this is one of the themes of the book. Title IX originally, as written, was supposed to just add the word sex to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, And because sex was in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, they left it out of Title VI. Had they been able to do that, it would have prohibited sex discrimination, not just in education, but in broad swaths of our society, in housing and hotels when you travel and healthcare and lots of other fields. But for reasons I detail in my book, it got carved out as a separate standalone law. But it borrowed the exact 37 words used in Title VI. 
So they were kind of siloed. You have Title VI prohibiting discrimination based on race, ethnicity, national origin. Then you have over here Title IX prohibiting discrimination based on sex. And it set a pattern for subsequent civil rights laws, um, the Age Discrimination Act, Section 504 about disability, to be also siloed separate laws instead of all together. And there's ramifications of that to today when we think of intersectional discriminations. Mm. And obviously the Supreme Court this term is gonna be dealing with a lot of decisions on these kinds of things. And it's something that is still part of our, our reality of uh, uh, in terms of whether these laws are being challenged and things. Um, and also I wanna mention that the book is very well organized and it does include in the appendix, the Title IX language. So if anybody who's reading it, you can actually go to the back and, and actually read the law itself. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your research process before we get into the book, because I'm I'm kind of deep in the research process myself. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what it was like to research this. Sure. Well, um, I'm a journalist, uh, have been a journalist for decades, and I, I'm not a historian. I'm not an academic. So I did need to learn some tools that academics use to do research. Um, but initially, when the idea first came to me, I thought, well, let me look into this. And I turned to the web, of course, as everyone does these days, to find out who were the experts, who was around then, etc. And one of the names that kept popping up is Bernice Resnick Sandler, and they called her the godmother of Title IX. I was fortunate enough to be visiting Washington, D.C., where she lived, and she invited me over and gave me five hours of video interviews with her and many subsequent interviews. And she liked the questions I asked. She said no one had ever asked some of those questions before. And she opened doors to everyone else in the Title IX universe for me. Um, many of them were elderly because this is a law from 50 years ago. And I thought, you know, if I'm gonna do this book, I can't do it on top of a full-time job. These people won't be around much longer. So I quit my job, went into semi-retirement to work just on this book for six years. And I'm glad I did because, oh, at least five or six people who I interviewed have since died. Um, but I got really important interviews with them. And oh, that's great. I went to the Library of Congress, of course, and did research there. One of the key resources that I recommend to anyone is the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They have so much. They have all of the voluminous papers of Polly Murray. They have all of Brittany Sandler's. They have a national organization for women. So much of what I needed was there. It is a, those both are, I've been at both places also in my research and I can't agree with you more. It's fantastic. Ironically, if you Google Title IX, um, sometimes what you end up with is the athletic clothes brand <laughs> I remember in the 90s when I got a catalog in the mail for at Title IX and I said, my goodness, what is this? And it was all athletic clothes that it that is uh, takes its name from this law. And I was like, I wonder how many people buy the yoga pants and not don't even know what the what the real connection is. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for 40 years and the company is based in the East Bay there and they had a store 
and we would go in occasionally. And if you asked the young woman behind the counter if she knew of Title IX, quite often the answer was no, not really. And that's just symptomatic of how the main problem with complying with or enforcing Title IX in our country is most people don't know about it. And they don't know they should be complying with it if they're in education. Right. So you mentioned Bernice Resnick-Sandler. Why don't you talk a little bit about her and the role she plays in Title IX? The origins of Title IX started a little bit differently. Um, Bernice Resnick-Sandler was one of relatively few women who were allowed to get doctorate degrees in the 1960s and earlier. Um, She was earning her doctorate degree in 1969 in education. And she loved teaching. She had been teaching some college classes while she finished her dissertation. And they had seven or eight openings at the University of Maryland where she was teaching, and they didn't even consider her. And she wondered, why? Why why can't they see me? So she was friendly with some of the faculty, and she went into one of the men's office and said, I'm a good teacher. I'm here. Why can't I even get an interview? And without skipping a beat, he said, well, let's face it. You come on too strong for a woman. And she went home and she cried. She believed it. As many women did back then, you have to realize it was a different mindset part of which has disappeared because of Title IX and the progressing women's movement. But back then, women didn't even need to be gaslighted. They just had internalized so much of uh, patriarchal notions of their limitations. So she cried and her husband, who um, her then husband, who was very good about these issues said, well, are any men in your department strong? And she said, yeah, they're men, they're all strong. He said, well, then it's not you. It's sex discrimination, which was a new term at the time, just starting to become more widely used. She still didn't believe it. It took her a few weeks more and a couple of job interviews where they said, nah, she's not really, you know, an academic. She's just uh, someone who's going to go home to the kids when they get sick. And they wouldn't hire her because she's a woman. And she finally put it together in her brain that, oh, something bigger is happening here. So it starts with her. It starts with her being told she's too strong for a woman, which makes no sense, and starting to realize, can this be legal? Can they do this? And doing the research on it. And from there, eventually we get Title IX. Mm, yeah, and the, the first chapter is called Strong. I wanted to ask you, you know, why did you choose that as the title of the first chapter? Partly because she was told she was too strong for a woman. And I don't want any woman to ever believe that. That's just policing your behavior. Um, But also that she had to be strong then internally to say, this isn't right. I mean, she knew in her heart and her mind that this was immoral, but could it possibly be legal? So she did the research. She started reading everything she could find about sex discrimination and laws. And keep in mind, this was new back then. There was no internet. Her main sources were government documents, um, some academic papers, but not many. Only in the late 60s had people started to study this issue very much. Uh, And in a document about civil rights laws, in a footnote, because she read footnotes, she was an academic, she saw reference to Executive Order 11, I'm going to get this wrong, 
and I, she saw reference to an executive order that said government contractors cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. And a light, a light bulb went off in her head. Almost all colleges and universities are government contractors. Therefore, this should apply to them and they should not be discriminating based on sex. This was a new concept. Very few people had noticed it. Isn't that so amazing? You know, you think about all the lawyers, all the people in government, all the people who write policy and things that had read that executive order, you know, 11375, and had not made that conclusion, that analysis, that it could be used in this way to fight sex discrimination. So I think that she really deserves an enormous amount of credit for formulating that argument. Well, keep in mind that this is all relatively new. Um, the women's movement had noticed, in fact, they had pushed very, very hard to get that executive order um, for more than a decade. Uh, and they did finally get it in 1968. And so, in the labor trend, it was mostly related in their struggles to employment, not necessarily to education, but to jobs um, and federal contract jobs. Uh, and then in, by 1969, the next year, when Sandler noticed it, uh, in the labor department, the head of the contracts compliance division was just starting to think of like, okay, how do we write the regulations for this thing? How do we enforce it? It was that new. And fortunately for Sandler, she hooked up with a really great guy there, Vince Macaluso, who taught her so much of what she needed to know about how Washington operates, um, even simple things like you know writing a thank you note if you get a meeting with someone. Uh, and he helped her start a campaign to um, file federal complaints in the labor department against every college and university in the country, and, and then individually against each one. And over the next few years, she and Ann Scott and the National Organization for Women filed individual complaints against hundreds of colleges and universities. This got traction, this got attention, and caught the eye of one congresswoman who held hearings that led us to Title IX. Oh, that's that's it's just the origin story of Title IX is extremely compelling in this book. And I want to read a quote from page 26, quote, to free not just the oppressed, but the oppressor. And this is something I don't think people talk about enough when we talk about the feminist movement, when we talk about sexism, when we talk about discrimination is this idea that there's a cost to discrimination for men too. And one of the things I always mention in my class, I try to plant this idea in my students' head about the, does is feminism good for men too? And the, these ideas of, of equality. So can you explain what you meant when you, when you included that? Sure. I mean, ultimately it refers to, um, you know, if you're going to ban sex discrimination, it, it covers all comers. It doesn't say women anywhere in Title IX. You know, it's sex discrimination of any kind. And so, for instance, a lot of men who get assaulted um, or harassed, often it's because the people who are doing the harassing have notions of masculinity 
that don't fit that person. They could be gay. They could be effeminate and straight. They could be uh, transgender. They could be non-binary. It doesn't matter. It applies to all sex and gender. But that quote that you um, just mentioned, I wrote that because it refers to something that Ann Scott said, who I just mentioned, who worked with Bernice Sandler in filing all those federal complaints about sex discrimination. Ann Scott uh, was an academic, and she uh, ended up going to Washington, D.C. to be NOW's legislative director, the very first one in Washington. And she wrote in one of her testimonies, the hidden cost to men is equally high. Being favored puts men in the position of profiting at the expense of women. No profit could ever justify such a cost. No one is equal until everyone is equal. Men, too, are the prisoners of their cultural status, forced to maintain a socially determined superiority, which is defined by women's inferiority. I cannot seriously believe that any man worth his salt wants to be defined as a man by how much better he is than a woman. I think too much of men to believe that, and I believe and hope men think too much of themselves to allow it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you know what's the interesting, too? Take, take this up to today for a moment. When the Dobbs decision came out this summer, it was noticeable how many men were also outraged, as well as women. You know, certainly this, this hit women very hard. But we're really seeing that, uh, that men have partnered in the cause much in a much larger, more visible way than in the past. So, you know, it's this idea of the, the change, the cultural change, too, that's taking place as a result of some of these earlier, uh, earlier legal changes, I think. I agree. I mean, I think in the last 50 years, it's become much more obvious to men that sex discrimination does exist and to be able to see it better. But it's also in their own self-interest to be against sex discrimination because sex discrimination affects everyone. Yeah. I, I mean, I think 37 Words also provides like a context of this era in American women's history, including the political leaders that were important during this time, who are not celebrated enough, in my opinion. People uh, like Patsy Mink and Pauli Murray, Shirley Chisholm, and Bella Abzug are all included. So what was your, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about some of these sure. yeah, political that, leaders? It was so fun for me to discover a lot of these women, and not that they hadn't been discovered, but I hadn't heard of them. I mean, this whole project for me was... Uh, sort of my pseudo dissertation and learning the women's history that I never got to learn in college. You know, we didn't have a women's studies department when I was in college in the 70s. So I read a lot. I would follow a thread. I would see a letter to Bernice Sandler in her files by someone, Polly Murray, who was that? And I'd follow that. And all of her papers were there. It was amazing. And um, and initially, when I first went on the web, you know, figure out who should I research or interview, um, the web points to Patsy Mink, uh, erroneously, as the originator of Title IX. Patsy Mink had an important role to play in defending Title IX, but she wasn't at all its originator. That's just something that the Internet took over and said after the law was renamed for her in 2002. So I tell her story and the important role she played. Um, 
there was, uh, I, I mentioned that one of the congresswomen held hearings about the federal complaints uh, that were being filed. That was Representative Edith Green of Oregon. She is the real mother of Title IX uh, in the House. Senator Birch Bayh is the father of Title IX in the Senate. Um, and it's, you know, it's a complicated thing to say, let's celebrate the originators of Title IX. Because uh, some of them, we can celebrate cleanly. Edith Green is a more complex package. And I think it's important today when things are so polarized between the parties and you tend to think a politician is good or bad, to look at someone who was kind of both, Edith Green was a mixed bag. She was a congresswoman from Oregon. She had, not single-handedly, but was a major force in passing the Equal Pay Act of 1963. That took her eight years. So she was a feminist on many levels. To get elected on her own in the 1950s was a feminist triumph. Um, but by 1970 and 71 and 72, when Title IX was being put together, by then she also was older, a little more conservative by then, uh, especially around some civil rights issues. She was sometimes called uh, the Nixon Democrat. Um, there was a lot of sexist reaction to her in Congress uh, because she spoke her mind and she did not suffer fools gladly. Someone might have said she came on too strong for a woman, um, but she uh, was respected even if not liked by the men in Congress. Um, she had some uh, opposing views to busing at the time, which was helping to desegregate schools. Um, and in the end, and this is a little bit of a spoiler for the book, this law, Title IX, that she fought so hard to get written and get passed, at the very end, she tried to kill it because she opposed the larger bill that it was part of. It was a very tiny part of the education amendments of 1972 which she opposed in the end because of its provisions about busing and certain things about student aid that she didn't agree with. She tried to kill it, but she didn't succeed because of the allies she had built up to that point who said, no, we got to pass this. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really interesting. And so, you know, I grew up really learning up because I grew up in New Jersey and listening to the New York news stations Bella Abzug was on the news all the time and Shirley Chisholm was in the news all the time. So some of these um, representatives in Congress were in my head a lot. So it was really nice to kind of reacquaint myself with them through your book. It's uh, it's really, um, it's it's quite a story how they, it's you, you really reveal how the sausage gets made. <laughs> yes, and that's what it was, is the typical sausage grind of Congress. And I, I like the shout out to Shirley Chisholm. She was a really important part of getting Title IX passed and then defending it from, you know, dozens of attacks from in Congress. They were playing whack-a-mole at that point, trying to beat back this attack on Title IX and that attempt to weaken it. Shirley Chisholm was there and strong from the beginning, and she does not get enough recognition for Title IX. Now, you also mentioned Polly Murray. I want to just mention in those hearings that Representative Edith Green held, Polly Murray appeared because she had read about what Bernice Sandler was doing and contacted her. Polly Murray wrote to virtually everyone that I can see from all of her letters at, at the Schlesinger Library, um, but she testified and others testified. And at the beginning, like I said, what they were trying to do is get the word sex 
inserted into Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And for Murray, that was important because she had an early understanding of intersectionality. I want to read you just a sentence from her testimony at those hearings because it expresses that we all, something we almost take for granted today, but that back then was kind of a new concept. She says, I am concerned with individuals as whole human beings, being accorded the respect and dignity, which is our common heritage. They are first and foremost persons, quite apart from any other identity they may possess. She says, I have learned this lesson in part because I am both a Negro, which was her chosen term at the time, and a woman whose experience embodies the conjunction of race and sex discrimination. This experience also embodies the paradox of belonging simultaneously to an oppressed minority and an oppressed majority, which is women, and for good measure, being left-handed in a right-handed world. As a self-supporting woman who has had the responsibility for elderly relatives, the opportunity for education and employment consonant with my potentialities and training has been a matter of personal survival. So she could see where discrimination against any of those aspects of her whole being oppresses her. And the same is true of almost everyone else. We have overlapping identities. And so her, you know, the assertion that no one's free till we're all is free has very personal meaning. And, and she really is so, uh, she really is the her first person to really clearly and beautifully articulate the idea and importance of intersectionality. And as we know now from a fine biography that delved deep into her many papers, she also was a closeted transgender man. She didn't use those terms back then, no one did, um, but that is how she saw herself though she never spoke about it publicly. I think that her generosity in, in terms of supporting people in their quest for the end of discrimination is is so uh, amazing. And I really wish if she had, if Polly Murray had lived at a different time, you know, they would have been a, a wonderful Supreme Court justice. Absolutely, absolutely. The just absolutely brilliant mind. Yes. And yeah. there's a quote that I wanted to read of uh, Polly Murray as well from page 33 of the book, quote, I am further convinced that the price of our survival as a nation is the sharing of our power and wealth, or rather the redistribution of this power and wealth among black and white, rich and poor, men and women, old and young, red and brown, and all the in-betweens. And I just, that quote is so beautiful and so on point in bringing the uh, the idea as a national issue, not just somebody feels wronged or somebody makes a different amount of money, but as a philosophical concept and connected to our national identity, it is so it's such an important, important uh, statement that I took away from it. And we have to look at all those aspects because you know, every five years when there's an anniversary of Title IX and there's all these celebrations, there are some people who look deeper and say, well, who has it benefited and who has not? And Polly Murray's vision of that completeness 
of discrimination and fairness in society plays out in that. Because, for instance, we've made great gains in athletics, but who's gotten those gains? Primarily rich white women. Um, if you look at immigrants, less so. Urban residents, less so. Women of color, less so. And now, of course, we have all the controversies about even wanting to exclude transgender athletes. So I like to say, which is not new with me, but I borrowed from reading people like Nancy Chi Cantalupo, a legal scholar, and others about Title IX. You know, we need to employ a critical race feminism or a social justice feminism where if we can fix something for people at the margins, someone who's the most vulnerable because of overlapping discriminations, if we can fix it for them, we're fixing it for a lot more people. Whereas if we fix it for, you know, the privileged, those people are still left on the margins. So it's sort of redirecting how we approach things that I think will help us really help Title IX achieve its promise. It's a, it's a very important point. So can you tell us briefly, you know, how did Title IX become federal law? Well, it was, and, and this was a fun um, chapter to write, the sausage making, because, you know, it started with Bernice Sandler finding the executive order and then trying to get the Labor Department to enforce it. And fortunately, the National Organization for Women had started up, but there was also another group called Women's Equity Action League, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a spinoff of now uh, by more respectable ladies in the Midwest who didn't want to touch the volatile issue of abortion, basically. So they were just going to focus on education and um, jobs, basically. And they teamed up with Sandler, she teamed up with them, and all of these people pushed to enforce the executive orders. Edith Green has her hearings, and that starts the ball rolling on legislation. Even well before, she had been wanting to write some kind of law dealing with sex discrimination in education. Um, so had Patsy Mink. I mean, others had been thinking of wanting to write a law because they could see in admissions, um, you know, back then law schools limited admissions for women to law school to about 9%. Yeah, the quota system. Yeah, it was a quota system all over the place. Um, so they started writing legislation and as happens, it goes through various permutations and the idea of amending Title VI went in and out of the legislation. All the women's advocates were pushing for it. In the end, uh, I think Edith Green didn't think politically it could pass, that she could get it through. And she was probably right at that time. So it became a standalone law dealing not with broad swaths of society, but just with education. Then the battle begins because to get even that passed, uh, she got it out of her subcommittee and because she had allies on the full education and labor committee in the house, she had Shirley Chisholm there. She had Patsy Mink there. She had um, allies among the men on the, on the committee. They were the only females on the committee pretty much. Uh, they, she got it through her committee. Um, but the house uh, only passed it with an amendment that said it would not apply to undergraduate students. And that, you know, pretty much made the law worthless, but they did pass a version of Title IX in the broader education amendments. Meanwhile, Senator Birch Bayh in the Senate, he pushed his version through and it did not get watered down. 
So in the end, you have these two different versions in the House and Senate. They go to a reconciliation committee and the committee decide they work on the whole bill. And it's the whole education amendment. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of papers, papers where the big issues were busing and um, student uh, financial aid and things. Title IX was a footnote. And still, she only got it through that committee, Edith Green did, because she had proxies for like a bunch of other people that she was able to apply. She forced it through into the bill. Then it had to go to a full vote back to the Senate and House because it had been changed. And that's where she wanted to kill the whole bill. She was lobbying, getting anyone she could to lobby people against the whole bill, which would have killed Title IX, but she didn't succeed. The voting on that was all over the map because there were so many issues that people were voting for. Um, it's not the usual, you know, this side versus that side. It's fascinating politics, but they got it through. It was hardly noticed. There was no party. No one really paid attention. Nixon signed it. I'm convinced he had no idea it was in there. <laughs> a year later, it went into it went into law. Right. And, you know, you mentioned this in the book that it was at, you know, at the same time of the Watergate break in. You know, so I wonder, yeah. you know, do you do you wonder if Nixon maybe was distracted by some of his. Completely, completely distracted. Yes. And on, that was also an election year, 1972. So all he's thinking of is what, you know, what should I do or not do that would help me get reelected? And the Watergate um, scandal was just starting, you know, two years later, he would resign. On my birthday, I became 18 and earned the right to vote and lost a corrupt president all in one day. It was fabulous. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he was distracted and this title nine was a footnote in this larger bill. Oh yeah. That's interesting. And then let's talk about enforcement because enforcement then is a whole nother issue. And the book I'm writing right now, uh, includes this really intense political fight over enforcement of the 18th amendment, which is prohibition and not selling alcohol in this country in the 1920s. And so you can have a law in the books, but if there's no will to enforce it, it's really not gonna have an impact. So can you talk a little bit about your story in enforcement? Yeah, well, there's, there's kind of even three steps. There's another step in between passing the law and enforcing it is you have to implement it. You have to write the implementing regulations. So you, Congress passes a law with those 37 sort of vague words in Title IX saying, no, you can't discriminate in education if you want our federal money. So what does that mean? How, what does that mean for colleges? How do you um, make that so? And so then it's up to the Department of Education in this uh, particular case to write the regulation saying, well, it means it applies to this or that, or you can do this or that. And that started to be a big battle because almost from the time Title IX passed, people started to notice, and those people mostly were in athletics. The men's coaches and the NCAA looked at that and thought, whoa, wait a minute. Are we gonna have to share some of the athletics money with women now? No, that's not gonna fly. And they started raising a ruckus. And when there's 
um, public controversy. It slows things down. It wasn't until 1975, after various vigorous battles between women's advocates um, and men's sports, trying to influence the education department. Finally, in 1975, we got the implementing regulations. Then you have to enforce those regulations. <laughs> uh, and that is an ongoing process, even today. But back then, for instance, when President Gerald Ford lost the election in 1976, and President Jimmy Carter's people moved in and were appointed to the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights, they showed up in the office and they found two boxes containing more than 600 unanswered letters and Title IX complaints. They were just dumped there. They weren't addressed. No one was trying to implement or enforce Title IX at that point. Same thing happened when Reagan was elected. Um, his administration was openly hostile to civil rights and definitely didn't enforce it and did many steps to try and block enforcement of civil rights. And even today, we can talk about this in more detail later, but under President Trump, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos rammed through changes to the regulations, those 1975 regulations that had never been changed over the years. She went through the whole two-year process to change them so that Trump's version became law. And once President Biden was elected, one of the first things he did was start the process to change those regulations back to a fairer version. So the enforcement depends a lot on the regulations and implementation. And um, even on the more granular level, it's up to the educational institutions to enforce Title IX, to comply with Title IX. And in many cases, that's not happening. Mm -hmm. But people are more aware of it now. Yeah, and then you end up with cases even in the Supreme Court, the VMI case comes to mind, which, you know, maybe a lot of people, you know, that aren't as into it as you and I are, maybe won't remember that, but the... Um, the Virginia Military the, Institute yeah. in the 1990s. Yeah, and, and so that case, was, a, was that, a, a, that a discrimination case? Did they use Title IX in that case? Do you know? They did because they ended up hiring Bernie Sandler as a consultant to help them write um, better policies once they were losing the case or it looked like they would lose the case. Um, they basically didn't want to admit women. Right. And so, yeah, that was against the law because they received federal funding, you know? That, yeah. It's, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I actually did a uh, interview on a book on women in the military recently and the impact of title IX on military admissions has completely changed this country in my opinion that the ability of women to attend the officer training uh, academies in west point and the naval academy and the coast guard and merchant marines and all of those have produced and the Air Force, you know, have produced these women leaders who many of whom are in Congress now. And so we can really trace and connect the dots between Title IX and the admission of uh, candidate, women candidates to leadership positions in the military and into political leadership as well. So the, the long arc of this story is... Yeah, you know, an enormous impact on changing the country. You can say that in almost any sector of society, too. 
Um, you know, if you look at, say, the national women's soccer team and their strong push to get equal pay, that wouldn't have happened if they didn't have Title IX to go through the soccer programs in our schools to become the strong advocates and the strong soccer players that they were. Title IX got women into law schools, although women didn't become a majority of law students till about 2016. But think of all the female lawyers who then became judges, who became politicians, you know, who became public advocates. Um, women got into medicine. And I think, again, we're not a majority until about 2017. But all the women physicians out there who made a difference in paying attention to physical ailments of women that had been ignored by the male-dominated medical society before that, it's a, any sector, you can look at Title IX and see the ramifications. Yeah, and, and being in higher ed myself, I would say that you know the fact that more women were able to earn PhDs meant that more women in academic uh, positions and shaping curriculum. So more women are gonna be representative in the curriculum, more women authors in the English courses, more women in history in the history courses, that, the, that it's really had such an enormous transform, transformational impact on society. Uh, so that it's this is this book is really would be so great in a in a history course because it includes the history of the law, but also you know leads us to understand its impact on American history in general. Well, and and my initial goal with this book was to help people understand the history of Title IX so that they could be better informed about today's controversies. You know. Um, I mean, if you look at so many different things, the whole, the issue of transgender students in sports. Well, we have lessons to be learned from the 1970s when they were debating the regulations about how do we include any women in sports fairly? What, what you know, what's fair? What do we require? And it was not given that it was going to be men's sports and women's sports. Dividing it by sex was only one option. And now that we have a better understanding of intersex individuals and non-binary individuals and transgender individuals that don't fit neatly into that binary, um, we can look at some of those other options. One of the options discussed was, well, maybe sports should be organized around other things like height and weight or other physical factors. Or maybe we should use sort of an Olympic model where a college brings their men's and women's teams to compete against the other college men's and women's teams. And then you combine the scores and the college with the highest joint score wins, which is an incentive to invest in your women's program as much as your men's program because their scores count the same. There were, the feminists were not united on any of these. And the conversations today, we're not gonna be united. We're gonna hopefully pick the best option and move forward and fine tune it as we go on. Yeah. So can you kind of sum up, you think, you know, the impact of Title IX on student athletics? Can you, do you have any kind of um, analysis or some kind of conclusion that you would like to share about the impact? Yeah, I'm going to throw a few numbers at you, uh, but then talk a little bit about, you know, who benefited and who was left out. So, you know, since Title IX passed in 1972, more than 10 times as many girl athletes competed in 2017 in high school 
but that's still fewer numbers than the number of boys in high school in athletics in 1972. And the number of boys has kept increasing. So great gains for women. They're still lagging behind boys in athletics in high school, even though they're the majority of students. So we're not there yet. In college, women's share of NCAA athletic opportunities increased from 15% of the playing slots in 1972 to 44% in 2018. But really that 44% should be 57% based on how many women are in college. And the number of playing slots should be apportioned depending on the percentage of students in the population. So this has more ramifications than did they get to play or not. We're talking money, far more money goes to women's college uh, let me back up here. There's far more money going to women's college athletic scholarships now, but men still get nearly a billion dollars more than women in scholarships, plus 162 million more in recruitment dollars and 200,000 more chances to play, according to the nonprofit group Champion Women. So things aren't anywhere near equal or equitable. We say equitable because you know it's not equal 50-50 it has to be equitable. And there are provisions in the Title IX regulations where the money in athletics sometimes doesn't have to be equal because it costs more for a football uniform than a swimsuit. You know, I mean, there's, there's things to even that out. But who gets left behind in all this? All those gains for women? Well, of the women's NCAA playing slots in 2018, white women got 69% of those playing slots even though half of undergraduates now are people of color, right? Women comprise 41% of coaches of women's teams, down from 90% before Title IX. And 85% of women's team head coaches are white. So again, we have to, you know, who's it going to benefit? Um, the New York Times did some good articles about uh, students in urban schools. They don't get the benefits the way that suburban school girls do in high school. Mm. So if we don't pay attention to those things, Title IX will never fulfill its promise. Mm -hmm. I, I always do sort of a, uh, like an informal, unscientific poll in my classes. And in my women's history class, I always ask them how many participated in high school or, you know, in sports when, as they were growing up. And it's usually a majority of the class, you know, even if they played soccer on Saturdays for the rec league and things like that. And I asked them to reflect on the impact it's had on them. Yeah. And uh, it's a very interesting conversation for them to impact. I, when I teach women's history and we come to this part of the course and we've talked about the women's movement and we've talked about the goals of the women's movement, Title IX is so important for them to understand as a tangible victory. Yes. Because so much of the women's movement was changing attitudes and changing views of what women could be and, and what women wanted. And so Title IX for them, I think, is a really helpful, in addition to you know its value in society, it's a it's a very tangible victory. Um, it is. For... It's become extra important because of the things that were not victorious. We didn't get the Equal Rights Amendment, right? 
abortion rights have been gradually been stripped back and now being take away, taken away completely. Title IX has survived and thrived because it quickly became very popular. You know, some of the earliest Title IX lawsuits were filed by fathers of talent, athletically talented girls. Um, and so parents were behind Title IX, students were behind Title IX, and it has persisted in many ways. Um, but even Title IX has been whittled back here and there, and that's ongoing. I try in my book, even though I focus on a handful of what I call characters, key people in Title IX history, to keep the reader turning the page and to have their stories frame Title IX stories, I also try and give a sense of the millions of people alongside them and behind them. This is a story of movements. We got Title IX because of the civil rights movement, because of the women's movement. Um, it was used as a tool by them and by the LBGTQ rights movement, uh, disability movement. It's an important tool, um, but everything's changing quickly too in, in so many respects. I mean, when we talk about athletics, I mean, athletics today is becoming more and more of a, of a um, a job, a profession. You know, you have name, image, and likeness payments now to athletes. Does it even still belong in education? You know, there was a court case or two in the 1970s that settled the question that, yes, we as a society think that uh, athletics are an important part of education. So if we're going to say that and have it in education, it should supply, it should apply equally to everyone. Everyone should have access to athletics if it's in education. But maybe in college now we need to peel that off. If it's a big business, it's not part of education. So there's a lot of permutations. Uh, there's a lot of work ahead and a lot of fun ahead mm -hmm. in all of this. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the whole idea, too, of what sports means in our society. Right. Um, it has enormous meaning to people in America. Uh, just look at how much money football makes and um and things like that the amount of the amount of resources the amount of the economy that is tied up in sports well and, and sports has been such an example of title nine because you know it's easy one of the four mothers of title nine who i interviewed you know she said it became such an issue in the 1970s because people could see it they could understand it you get to play or you don't get to play you know you get to play on a nice baseball field or your softball team has to play in a swamp I mean, it was that where if, if you tried to explain um, gender discrimination in uh, admissions to a certain program, uh, it, it's like trying to describe a spiral staircase without using your hands. Uh, so sports has been easy to understand and easy for journalists to say, okay, school district A, how much money do you spend on boys and girls sports? or men's and women's sports in college. Unfortunately, we have a law passed in the 1990s by two black congresswomen that forces colleges and universities the equal athletic, uh, equal EADA, Equal Athletics Disclosure Act, where colleges and universities every year have to report how many students are playing sports, men or women, what kind of money do they put behind it? How many coaches do they hire? What do they pay them? So it's pretty easy on the college level to see where someone's discriminating and not. You'd be, you'd be amazed how many are out there that give you that evidence, but unless someone complains, it just goes on discriminating. In high school, we don't, we don't have that law yet. We need an EADA for high school. 
Mm. Bills have been proposed and voted down multiple times by conservatives who say, oh, that would be too much of a burden on school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a burden on girls when they get discriminated against and don't get to play. So what yeah, I, I love the story you tell about the Yale crew team, you know, the women on the Yale crew team who didn't have a shower, couldn't get a shower because they didn't have the facilities and they were sitting in cold, wet crew clothes, freezing. Yeah. But I had so much fun researching this book. I mean, that that was one of the fun stories from, I think it was 1976 or seven, the Yale women's crew team. They had no locker room down by the river. The men did. And they, after a cold morning rowing on the river and being sweaty and freezing, they go in and take showers. The women had to sit on the bus and wait for the men to shower and then drive the half hour back to campus. And by the end of a semester, my, many of them were sick and one of them had pneumonia. And so they, and they had tried asking for better conditions. So they marched in to the women's athletic director office and stripped nude and they had written on their bodies title nine and read a statement saying you know these are the bodies that you are exploiting um the main thing is they brought along a stringer photographer for the new york times so they got publicity there had been a similar um kind of stripping protest a few years earlier for the swim team but it didn't have any press so no one heard about it uh but this one got press and very quickly Yale put a temporary locker building down by the river and then they built them a new one because the alumni were outraged. Um, there's so many, so much activism in the 1970s at Spelman College in Atlanta, which is a historically black women's college, and it had never had a female president of the college. And in the late 1970s, the trustees once again picked a man to be president of Spelman and the students were outraged. They locked the doors of the meeting room and kept the trustees hostage. 600 students, which is about half the student population, slept in the hallways. They tied the rope, the, the door shut with rope and uh, alumni and students brought them all food and they kept them there for days until finally the trustees agreed to meet with them and then they stopped the protest. But can you imagine that today, locking in the trustees and for days and not leaving? That's such powerful advocacy. It didn't, however, get them a female president that year. It wasn't until somewhere in the mid eighties that they got a female president, but every little bit helps. You know, when we do something activist-like, we don't know what the effect is going to be. We may not get our immediate objective, but it all adds up and it can have ramifications down the line. Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about the backlash. Um, yeah. So Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. And with the support of a growing conservative movement, and I always uh, mention that I think the Republican Party has not given enough credit to Phyllis Schlafly, who really was important as a grassroots Republican conservative activist. And so she comes into, I was like, wow, I can't pick up a book lately without having to read about Phyllis Schlafly. <laughs> I'm yes. sorry. She's like, she's like everywhere on that, you know, Mrs. America on Hulu and things. So here's Phyllis Schlafly also being a, an, an opponent of Title IX, of course. And so there she is. So can you talk about like this backlash? 
Yeah, you know, uh, there's a great book, by the way, called Divided We Stand um, that came out just a few years ago that looks at the conservative women's movement because it had not been given uh, enough credit for the changes that it uh, affected in U.S. society. And it's a fascinating book. Um, so I really recommend Divided We Stand. Um, but yeah, there was a backlash. Uh, it was a combination of things. It, it was, you know, from, from Reagan's time on, um, it cemented in the leadership of the Republican Party uh, the idea that government is an intrusion and that government shouldn't do much of anything. Uh, I want to read just a passage from my book here. Yeah. Social traditionalism, white male supremacism, and fiscal individualism combined in a surging movement against what was called government overreach. And it appealed to people who resented civil rights laws for taking away some of their privileges. That's what was driving it. You know, civil, keep in mind the Civil Rights Act had only passed in 1964, and it was a challenge to enforce that. We were only 16 years out from that when Reagan got elected. It was as much a backlash to that as anything else, um, but that often goes hand in hand with misogyny too. Uh, it's people who have the privilege trying to control people who are being denied those privileges. Um, Ray, you know, Phyllis Schlafly was a conservative woman who backed Reagan uh, and while he claimed he'd fight discrimination against women and minorities, uh, his staff, for instance, in the Office of Management and Budget, they openly made uh, racist and sexist jokes. They called Title IX the Lesbians' Bill of Rights. So you've got homophobia in there too, right? I mean, it's the people with the privileges trying to fend off the marginalized who are demanding fairness. Um, so they wanted government out of um, enforcing rules against discrimination or leveling the economic playing, playing field, maintaining a basic social safety net. Exactly. He started immediately cutting budgets and dismantling civil rights programs. And this has long-term ramifications because, for instance, his Office for Civil Rights in the Education Department, it didn't even spend $20 million of the funds appropriated to it by Congress in 1980 to 1985. The, the budgetary hit continued for OCR under subsequent presidents. No one really restored that. So that when you talk about enforcing Title IX, which is the Office for Civil Rights job, you know, full-time staff was 1,099 people in 1981. But in 2016, they only had 563 staff people, while the number of complaints had increased from 2,800 to more than 16,000. Yeah. So... That idea. Well, you know, it's it's very interesting. So backlash can take place in a lot of different ways. And I think that Reagan, for me, really represents this moment of, you know, white patriarchal pushback in all different kinds of ways, philosophically, you know, saying that this isn't, you know, it isn't uh, right to it's not consistent with conservative principles, but also kind of behind the scenes by just very quietly defunding, quietly shaving away the enforcement part of Title IX and really changing the 
uh, changing the entire energy, taking taking the wind out of the sails of the of this progressive change that has meant so much. And you know, so go ahead. Well, and and here's where you know, knowing that this is a movement and not just individual actions is important because the women's movement continued through the 1980s, through Reagan's reign. Um, there were some big hits under Reagan. It's not just him controlling the purse strings. But for instance, there was a key Supreme Court case. You know, Title IX has been to the Supreme Court multiple times and been back to Congress, you know, more than a dozen times. I don't know that that's typical for a civil rights law. But there was a case in the 1980s called Grove City College versus Bell, who was the Secretary of Education at the time. And this was a continuation of strategies from the 1970s to do anything to get rid of Title IX, especially in athletics. And what Grove City College said was, because it was one of the few colleges in the country, it's a traditionalist Christian college that accepted no federal money. So it was saying, we don't accept federal money. And so Title IX shouldn't apply to us. Okay, well, we do accept financial aid from the federal government for students, but that really shouldn't apply to us. Um, and when it became clear that that was going to maybe apply to them, they said, well, then it should only apply in the, the exact parts of our college that get the federal funding. So only apply to the financial aid office. Title IX should not apply to athletics. It should not apply to anything that doesn't get direct federal funding. And it went to the Supreme Court, and by then Reagan was in power, and his Justice Department did not argue strongly on behalf of Title IX. And the Supreme Court said, okay, we'll buy your theory. And that basically decimated Title IX in all of athletics and, and elsewhere. The Office for Civil Rights had to start canceling um, investigations into sexual assault sometimes because for instance, it happened in the economics building, which wasn't built with federal funding. Had it happened over there in the English department's building, which did receive federal funding, maybe we would investigate. It was insane. Um, so right away, all the, all the allies in the movement had to come together because remember those 37 words, they didn't apply just to Title IX, they applied to the Age Discrimination Act. They applied to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And all of those laws then were invalidated in the same way. So all those allies came together and had to get Congress to pass the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1987. It took them four years. It was quite a battle. They did manage to do it, but with an exception that has ramifications today. In order to get it passed, they most of the allies, not the women's advocates, but most of the others accepted an amendment saying that no school would be required to offer abortion services, which they had been as part of the equity under the original Title IX regulations. And to try and mitigate that a little bit, because it was clear it was gonna go whether the women's advocates wanted it that way or not. The women, uh, Marsha Greenberger and others at the National Women's Law Center got in another amendment saying, no women in school will be penalized if they do have an abortion or offer birth control, you know, you can't retaliate. That's very important today, you know, because now this Supreme Court has taken away abortion rights and conservative states are trying to police colleges and universities and schools saying you can't offer this. Well, they have to, they have to not discrimination. You know, if a student, 
in Texas, goes somewhere else to get an abortion and comes back, she cannot be retaliated against because of Title IX and because of the Civil Rights Restoration Act of mm. 87. Wow. Well, so at the end of the book, you have sort of this nice wrap up that brings the book right up till today and really kind of reflects on what's to come. And you have a great quote from uh, Sandler that you have to take the long view of things. So can you sort of, can you comment on that part of the book? Well, that's sort of a privilege of someone my age who has been fortunate to be around for a long view. Um, But that's sort of the nature of change and especially changing culture. You can change a law, but then you have to enforce it. Even if you enforce it, it doesn't mean other people will follow the law. Changing culture and the mindset takes time. And that's the long view. And every little bit helps. I mean, the fact that, you know, more men today approve of Title IX and the fact that more men today um, can see sexual harassment and assault and not just write it off as boys will be boys, that's culture change. Title IX has contributed to that. Um, Activist women have contributed to that by forcing it into view when people didn't want to see it. Uh, So... You know, we've had a huge, you know, the two big backlash chapters in my book are the Reagan years and the Trump years. And each time you had women's advocates who had worked hard for more than a decade by 1980 and many decades by 2016. And to see so much of that fall apart when someone gets into power like that and rewrites the rules of Title IX and starts taking back rights and not enforcing civil rights laws, that's a setback. But the difference that I noticed was, you know, in 1980, women were devastated and they were shell-shocked. And Bernice Sandler recognized it sort of as the stages of grief. They did finally find their feet and younger uh, activists stepped in to sort of fill the shoes of older activists who were a little burnt out by that point. Same thing in 2016, except now you have hundreds of millions of women and men allies who are saying, oh, no, oh, no, we're not going to put up with this and reacting immediately with the women's marches and others. That's progress. So you can see the backlash or you can see the progress in the reaction to the backlash. They're both true. They're both going to continue. It's a long haul. And one of the features I try to get through in 37 words is how much fun the activists have had knowing they had each other and being with each other over the years. And that's what I would hope going forward that people take from this book. This isn't all doom and gloom and, oh my God, we're being oppressed and you know there's gonna be a backlash. No, we have each other. We'll move forward. We're gonna keep at it. This is absurd. Let's go do it. Yep, absolutely. I love it. And I can't let you go without asking you some questions about actually your first book, because the first book you wrote on the plug-in hybrid car also connects to women's history. And really one of my favorite discussions in women's history class is about a book I read years ago called Taking the Wheel by a woman named Virginia Scharf. And the reason I love to talk about Uh, the early automobile makers is because they initially, even 
you know, back in the end of the 19th century, were beginning to play with the idea of making electric vehicles. And so at the very beginning of the automobile industry, they made electric vehicles and they made them because they thought it was appropriate, an appropriate vehicle for a woman driver because they were cleaner, that they didn't have a very far range. So she couldn't really get too far from her house. <laughs> Kept women kind of close to home, which they thought was positive. And so I, I wanted to mention this to you because I, uh, I love that connection of automobiles and women's history. Um, and so I wanted to acknowledge your first book on the plug-in hybrid car. Yeah, you know, it was a, a great marketing tool for people selling electric cars back then, too. I mean, back then, there were three kinds of cars. These are in the very early years. There were gasoline cars, there were steam cars, and there were electric cars. And electric cars were popular. They were quiet. You didn't have to crank an engine to get it started, like with gasoline engines, you know, which wasn't very ladylike. It was quiet. It was clean. You know, you don't have the dirty, smelly, you know, gasoline or... Um, have to deal with potentially dangerous steam, noisy. Um, so it was a good marketing tool. Women did prefer them. Um, and it gave women a certain amount of freedom then to be able to drive an electric car instead of have to ride a horse or drive a buggy. You know, today there are many women involved in what I call the EV movement. I myself am a co-founder of a national nonprofit organization called Plug in America. And it's by EV drivers who are trying to uh, help other EV drivers or people who want to drive EVs. As much about climate change and you know women wanting to preserve a world for their children uh, as it is about not wanting to be under the thumb of a foreign dictator who controls the oil. Um, so the electric vehicle movement is still going strong. That story is in, in, in um, plug-in hybrids tells how we got to this current generation of electric vehicles. Uh, but that too is in progress. We need to accelerate the transition to electric vehicles um, because of climate change. It's, I encourage people to read it. It's out of print right now because it's a little out of date because of so much that has happened in terms of new vehicles coming on the market. But you can find used copies online if you like the historical perspective. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, it's, um, it's not something that we definitely, we naturally put together of the EV movement and electric vehicles and women, you know, we don't necessarily naturally put those two things together, but it, it does have a nice intersection in the, uh, for the history. And, you know, I want to also recommend to everyone listening, your website, which is sherryboshirt.com. And you can really learn a lot. Your website is beautifully curated. It has a tremendous amount of links and a lot of information. And I really encourage people to check it out. It's an excellent, excellent website. Thank you. You know, and, and I, the website, the blog is called 37 Words, just like the book. So it, it's easier just search for 37 Words blog. Um, especially this year in the 50th anniversary, I'm blogging every week, uh, which and gets really granular, granular on any Title IX issue that crosses my desk. It gives you an overall sense of how much is still out there in terms of enforcing Title IX. Yeah, that's great. I want to thank Sherry Boshirt for joining me on the show today. I really enjoyed this discussion of the book, 37 Words, Title IX and 50 Years of Fighting Sex Discrimination, published by the New Press. 
You need to read it because it really does make you want to keep turning the pages. It's a really fun read. And so until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>